Welcome to the Cyber Info Exchange, a monthly podcast produced by CyberJRX focused on providing actionable insights into today's cybersecurity topics. Hello, listening audience. I am Shane Hazard, the Director of Assessment Operations at CyberGRF, and I am joined by my co-host, Dave Stapleton. Hi, everybody. I'm Dave. I'm the CISO at CyberGRX. And today's guests, we have got Caitlin Grunberg, Lead Privacy Analyst and part of the Assessment Operations team, who's been with CyberGRX for over three years and regularly consults on issues pertaining to privacy and data protection. Say hello, Caitlin. Great. Thanks, Jane. I hope today to come to the table with some security and privacy experience in the government, retail, and financial uh, financial spaces. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we've also got with us today Matt Lausch, Lead Content Analyst at CyberGRX, who regularly addresses questions uh, pertaining to CyberGRX's assessment content and comparing and contrasting their relationships with various other standards. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. All right, folks. Thanks for joining us for this uh, episode. We want to make sure that this podcast is something that's beneficial for all listeners. So we're trying to make it actionable. The information that you get and gain by listening to us um, it should be something that you can put into practice uh, fairly quickly. And we also want to make sure this is applicable for folks of all levels, um, from your C-suite folks all the way into the engineering stack and, and beyond. And um, we hope that you'll join us on a monthly basis when we release these um, podcast. They'll, they can be found on cybergrx.com. Today we're going to be speaking in the area of privacy. Uh, and initially let's talk about what privacy is. Uh, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, broadly speaking, deems it as the right to be left alone. Um, I'm sure there's more that we can add to that from the vast experience of our guest speakers that we've got in the room. So, Caitlin, what, what would you add on to uh, that piece of what privacy is. Sure, absolutely. You know, simply put, privacy is extremely personal. It's something that we should, you know, there are different aspects of privacy of what are considered personally identifiable information. And, you know, the ability to control that information on how it's used and whether to grant access or take away access to those, those pieces of personal data that describe us. I think that's where we come in today with that relationship that privacy and security is becoming so closely related. But ultimately, privacy is personal, and we should have the ability to govern how it's used. Excellent. Um, Matt, has privacy always been important in this field over two organizations? No, I think until just recently, um, GDPR really put it on the map, and people started to realize they had to really take things seriously. Um, based on some of the penalties and fines that uh, potentially they could face if they didn't. So I'd say, yeah, the last two or three years, it's really started to blow up and become, you know, a hot topic that everybody's interested in talking about, thinking about. I think I, you know, I would kind of add on to that with, and I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but maybe I'll just jump ahead. Privacy and security have a lot of sort of overlap, overlapping objectives. You know, we want to make sure in the security world that, you know, data is confidential, it's available, it's, you know, its integrity is upheld. Um, and there's a lot of that that we see in privacy as well. So in some senses, I think that we've been doing some of the privacy activities without necessarily associating with privacy per se. We haven't been using that terminology, but we've been doing things like encrypting sensitive data at rest and in transit in ways that you would want your privacy data or your personal data or PII, as Caitlin just said, um, to be protected. So I think there's also been a sense of 
privacy type activities that have been occurring in the technology and cybersecurity industry for a long time that just weren't associated necessarily with a privacy domain per se. And things like what Matt was saying, GDPR, CCPA, some of these other ones have really brought that term privacy, I think, to the fore. And people are more cognizant of it. They're more aware of it. Um, but we've been doing some of this stuff for a while. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think privacy and security have always overlapped. They're not the same, but they're very close to one another. Um, and they uh, now, with the regulate, regulatory environment, they have to be uh, looked at even more closely and almost separated uh, even more than they are. Yeah. yeah, I think you really have to be able to identify the functions in your organization that are privacy-specific, that are security-specific, and then the overlap to be able to have a case against a privacy regulator that might have those questions of how are you meeting through the intent of the law. Mm -hmm. One thing I think that's important to, to kind of point out here is that, you know, look 50 years ago how we protected personally identifiable information. You know, that was uh, locking file cabinets, locking doors. Um, you know, we still use burn bags in, you know, areas of the government. But as Privacy, privacy has always been there. Personal information has always been collected, um, but it's how and where that's being collected now. You know, as technology has increased, that ability to find different ways to protect the data, you know, no one's storing in file cabinets anymore, hopefully. Uh, you know, it, it's being, you know, in databases and computers. So it's just, it's had to evolve. And that relationship between privacy and security, um, cybersecurity has just had to become that much closer just as our technology has, has updated and um, now is in everything that we use from our cell phones um, to, you know, biometric identifiers on Facebook and apps, which I know we'll talk about later. Yeah, the technology piece is, is key here because back to Matt's original point, you know, privacy seems to be a buzzword that's been popping up in the last, you know, five years or so has become really, really popular. I think some of that is due to the way technology has changed the way we can access, you know, personal data. We can expose it, we can, we can collect it, that kind of thing. And so it's forced us to start looking at things in a different way, which, you know, begets these privacy regulations and everyone's focused on privacy. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild to watch that evolution kind of spike up more recently. Great. So Matt, having a focus on frameworks, content, and uh, the various aspects of, of questionnaires and assessments, um, are there privacy control frameworks similar to the security control frameworks that exist? Yes, absolutely. Um, NIST actually just released their first privacy framework um, that covers, uh, you know, it feels very similar to the rest of the NIST frameworks that they've released. And there's actually a lot of overlap between um, the cybersecurity framework and the privacy framework. And they've outlined that in their documentation of uh, shading the different controls that are covered somewhere else in, in one of their frameworks. Uh, Caitlin, are, yeah. all, are all companies required to implement privacy controls I feel like this Are is a trick question. <laughs> it, 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 I, feel, I feel like it is too, Dave. Uh, thanks, Shane, for this. Uh, no, just think? kidding. <laughs> um, in, in my utopian society, they would be. Um, but honestly, it just depends on where you are from a, from a jurisdiction perspective. You know, where are you in the country? Or where are you in the United States? Where are you, know, are you in Europe, the EEA? 
Um, you know, what type of approach are you taking to privacy? Are you a sectorial model like you are in the United States, uh, where states make their own laws? Um, so one law in California may not be applicable in Pennsylvania or Colorado. Um, so, you know, as far as the United States is concerned, just recently, um, now all 50 states have breach notification laws. So that would be a control that would have to be in place in all 50 states for organizations. Um, but that's not the same that, you know, that's not applicable in, you know, the EU or Australia, for example. Um, so are they required? Um, you know, I would say just again, depending on where you are. So this is where the trick question comes in. Um, I would love if they do. You know, we're headed in a direction that, um, you know, there's new privacy privacy laws being passed by government, you know, monthly here now in the states um, due to GDPR, as Matt previously mentioned, and CCPA in California. Um, the best thing that you can do is, you know, get ahead of those things. So, you know, by implementing some of the privacy controls now, you can stay ahead of some of the legislation that will soon maybe be coming at a federal level. On the topic of applicability, I wonder if there's other characteristics of an organization that would affect um, when a privacy regulation is applicable, um, for example, things like revenue or you know where you collect the data, you know where the where do the people live who you're collecting data on, that kind of thing. Are there any kind of those other sorts of finer characteristics that might uh, affect applicability? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for example, with CCPA, um, companies that serve California residents with at least 25 million in annual revenue are required to comply. Um, additionally, depending upon um, the size of, of the data set they're using, if it's at least 50,000 people or half their revenues derived from the sale of that data, um, then they're also required to um, comply with CCPA. Uh, and they don't even necessarily have to be based in the United States. Got it. It's just about California citizens, right? Yeah, and the data that you're collecting and selling primarily. So that's one of the big differences is it's um, CCPA is very specific with selling data. Uh, as being one of the requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and what are the negative attributes of not meeting the privacy regulations? Uh, some of the punishments, uh, I guess you could say, if you don't have a satisfactory privacy program in place. I think it's public flogging and uh, tar and feathering, I believe I've heard. Yeah, and then on top of that, it can be uh, 100 to 750 per incident after you've been flogged publicly. <laughs> there you go. But that's for individual <laughs> consumer incidents. Uh, the California Attorney General can also enforce um, civil penalties of between 2,500 and 7,500 per incident as well. Grief, all right. Which is, in hindsight, far less than uh, what GDPR can uh, leverage against you. Talking GDPR total percentages. percent of, yeah. of annual um, revenue, correct? Yeah. Wow, yeah. One thing I'd like to point out, if you don't mind, just since we're talking about CCPI and GDPR and, and privacy, just because we're here, um, you know, the the issue of privacy in the EU and the issue of privacy or the EEA and the privacy in the United States, it, it ends up being slight the political debate, um, which we won't go into. But, you know, the the, uh, the EU citizens, they were given, you know, they have had the right to privacy. You know, if someone's 20 years old here, they've had the right to privacy since they were born. You know, here in the States, these new privacy laws are something of, of an innovative step. And I think the big, a big uh, issue coming forward is with these U.S. privacy laws is how um, United States citizens are going to figure out how to use them because, you know, 
privacy is not something we're born with here. You know, the government regulates that. Um, so I'll stop there before I go down that rabbit hole. But that's an important distinction, I think, um, with these up and coming U.S. privacy laws that we need to keep in mind as, as organizations move forward. And that's going to be fascinating to see how at a federal level um, the government handles privacy. I know there's been a number of uh, legislation, um, you know, that have been introduced in various committees, but they just haven't uh, made it through yet. So I'm really curious to see what's going to happen when there is a more modern and comprehensive federal privacy law and how that would affect implementation of individual state laws. I mean, it's just, I feel like it's going to be a significant amount of time spent in courts to sort all that out. California's actually taken a pretty interesting approach to this with the CCPA in that they've got an entire laundry list of things that they consider personally identifiable information, which in my opinion really isn't. Um, an IP address, a birthday, we all know there's more than 365 people in the world, but a birthday on its <laughs> own is really not PII. Um, but California has taken the stance that things like olfactory uh, settings, uh, heat, um, diagrams of an individual are all personally identifiable, but until you start pushing one or two and start correlating those items together, then they become personally identifiable sure. and can get you to one person. Yeah, and I think that's a lot, in large part the definition, right? It's sets of or individual information that can lead you to identify a single individual on the face of the planet. Right. Yeah. But that laundry list just doesn't quite <laughs> capture yeah. that intent. I mean, pretty soon it's going to include the name of my pet. Who knows? Just the name of my pet. <laughs> um, so we've talked uh, quite a bit about CCPA. What other uh, prominent, and we all know and have heard of GDPR, uh, but what other prominent privacy regulations are out there? I think something else that's interesting to note, um, the UN, the Human Rights Council actually adopted in 2017 that uh, there's, there's the fundamental human right to privacy in the digital age. Hmm. There's not been a lot of action based on that, but it's, it's being recognized at that level. It's a fundamental human right. But that Australia one is kind of multi-tentacle. There's yeah. like, well, so the Australia one is not the CC. The excuse me, the CPS two thirty four has privacy aspects to it, but it's yeah. not their privacy. No, they have the Australia privacy rule. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's the APEC privacy framework, the Asia Pacific, there's some South American ones, but I think if we start talking about those, those are really just data transfers and, and how those are regulated. So I'm not sure if we want to dive deep into that. Okay. Let's yeah. go away from that rabbit hole. I've got another, though. I've got a really good question here though. Um, so kind of going back to does privacy apply to me or does it apply to me? Uh, let's talk for a couple of minutes about Extraterritorial jurisdiction. Woo! Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I love just, it rolls off the tongue. And people try to get me to use the acronym. ETJ just doesn't sound near as cool. Yeah, so extraterritorial jurisdiction is a feature of a lot of the new privacy regulations that basically means the jurisdiction, the scope of the enforcement, extends to wherever that data exists. It's not bound in some sort of geographical boundary. So for example, um, the CCPA that we mentioned a few times already is, doesn't apply only to companies who do business in California. It applies to the personal data of California citizens. 
So if you are a citizen of the state of California, but you're on travel in New York and you stay in a Marriott hotel and they collect your personal um, data, CCPA applies in that situation. Um, and it's, it's, I think, something that maybe has existed before, but it's really pronounced with these privacy regulations because they, every, basically every company collects some amount of personal data. As we talked about before, maybe there's some differences in revenue and some other characteristics of your organization that would dictate whether or not all of these regulations actually apply to you. But almost everybody's got this data, and so people really pay a lot of close attention to it, and they realize every time one of these new regulations comes out, oh, geez, it's quite possible that I have to now uphold the requirements of that regulation too. And you know, much like security standards, no two of these things are exactly the same. So now you've got to go through the arduous task of figuring out, all right, what are the requirements from CCPA? What are my GDPR requirements? What are all these different ones? And come up with some sort of a solution of how you're going to implement a privacy program. So the extraterritorial jurisdiction, I think, I understand the concept of it. Um, it makes sense, but boy, does it throw a monkey wrench into things for companies that are trying to be compliant. And trying to be global. Yeah, exactly. The more global you are, it just really starts to impact you quite uh, quite a bit. Yep, absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Um, so I'm going to go around the room on this one. Um, if an organization hasn't focused on privacy in the past, but they want to get started, what would you recommend they do first? Um, and oh where do you think it should belong in an organization? Wow, this is a big one, Shane. Do you mind if I start? No, please. Sure. So I've been a part of a couple organizations that um, really treated privacy, as I hate to say it, as a redhead myself, the redheaded stepchild. Um, they really don't know where to put it, nor does anyone want it, um, due to all the legal strings and fines attached to, to, to privacy and, and breaches, et cetera, and the responsibility of protecting it, really. Uh, I've seen it in legal organizations. I've seen it in or legal departments. I've seen it in infosec departments, GRC departments, seen it in its own privacy department somewhere in a basement. Just kidding. Um, but, you know, it's really where it's a hot potato. Um, so, so one of those things that I think that, you know, once we start owning privacy, um, where companies need to really start is just knowing where their data is, um, specifically personal data, but data encompasses more than that. Um, but knowing where it is, knowing where it's located. Um, and there's some things like privacy by design, engineering by design that will help you track that as you're building Things, within, things such as applications and databases within your organization um, that will help you. And I'll just leave with the fact that it's really important to only collect what you need to collect. Um, you shouldn't be collecting social security numbers if your organization doesn't need them or use them in any way. If uh, an organization hasn't focused on privacy before, what would they do to get started? Uh, what should they do first? And where should privacy be located? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I I think it depends on, uh, as far as the location of privacy in your organization, it really depends on the type of organization you run. But um, to, to kind of go along with what Caitlin said, of starting with just understanding what data you're collecting, understanding where it's stored, how it's stored, who has access to it, um, and how it's being used uh, within your organization. And if, is that consistent with uh, the intent that it was collected? And really beginning to start to map out some of those um, like major principles of these privacy regulations uh, against how you're implementing privacy in your organization. And as you, you get into that, you start to understand more and more of the regulation and 
uh, more and more of what your organization is actually doing. And I would say that the maybe the first first thing, and it might sound obvious to do, is assign someone the responsibility for privacy in your organization. Sometimes that would be the title, like privacy officer, or something like that. But as Caitlin said, it can be a bit of a hot potato because there's so much that goes on with privacy, and there's so much accountability, and um, there's really a bright light being shining on privacy right now. Might not be the kind of thing anyone wants to voluntarily take on. Um, so I think it's important to make sure that someone knows that it's my responsibility to start to do all the things that um, you know Matt and Caitlin were just talking about. That person can start to look at, well, what privacy data do we have? Where is it? Why are we collecting it? All the things that we just mentioned. Um, and even get into the very, personally thing, very difficult process of trying to understand which of these privacy regulations actually apply to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I totally agree. Having a privacy officer and a point of contact identified front, up front. Uh, unfortunately, because of the time that these are coming in, uh, most organizations are well-established and well-started, so you can't, uh, starting the organization, be addressing privacy right off the bat. You, It's almost forcing you to go backwards and find out where the data is, doing the data discovery, uh, cataloging what data you have, where it's at, who maintains it, and like Matt said, most importantly, what you do with it. Um, because this can be very costly to an organization, uh, crippling if not critical, uh, if they are found out of compliance with a privacy requirement or a regulation. Um, so what would you recommend are some good privacy-related resources for organizations to get started, organizations to look at, um, other than, and I mentioned before, the, IA, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, uh, which I've been a member of before, and They've got a lot of interesting and good resources out there, but uh, what others would you would you recommend? DLA Piper has a tool, uh, the Data Protection Laws of the World Map, that allows you to visualize first just your country and what you know how heavily regulated it is, and then you can click in and um, there's just tons and tons of information about all the laws and links to the actual text of regulations. Um, I use that that tool all the time. You stole mine. That's exactly, I mean, literally looking at it on my screen right now, that's the one. It's such a great tool. I mean, I'm a visual kind of a learner anyway, so that certainly helps me. Colors, and it makes it simple for my little mind to be able to grasp. But the ability to be able to dig right in and see that specific text for a particular area, they lay it out in a nice way too. It's easily formatted with a little summary and then they can kind of get into the official text as well, which I really like. Caitlin? And sure. In addition to that, I would just say if you have any questions about which, you know, what your state laws are and what you, what type of umbrella you fall under here in the United States, um, go to your state website. I mean, there's a lot of information on ca.gov about the CCPA. Um, so, and, and honestly, Google's also your best friend in this situation. You'll find the website that Matt and Dave just talked about. Um, but if there's any questions you have, you know, what's my state breach notification law or, you know, how, you know, with the CCPA, the rights that the consumer now has in California, you know, how to go about exercising them. They should have information on those sites as well. Fantastic. So as a final note, what would be the one thing that all companies should be doing right now uh, with regard to privacy? 
having a privacy program plan, honestly, um, just the first step is getting started. Um, you know, we talked about what were those things that, you know, in an organization you need to, you know, should start doing. Um, but I think the first step is honestly starting. Um, the, the more you get into the weeds, into, the, you know, applications you're developing or software you're developing, the, the harder it's that tech debt that it's going to take to go back in and put privacy um, engineer and privacy engineering by design and privacy design and data mapping. Um, it's going to just increase your tech debt the longer you wait to, to implement. So just start a program. Begins with starting. I would agree with that. I'd say the, the first step is developing a plan with actionable steps um, that you can execute on in the short term to really better understand um, what it is that you need as the end product. And I would say educate yourself. I mean, things like this podcast, I think we're providing a lot of good information for folks to get started. But sometimes you just have to sit down and read, just understand what it is uh, that's going on. Um, there's loads of resources out there. As, as Caitlin said, sometimes Google can be your best friend. Just type in the question you're trying to answer and see what pops up and, and give yourself the time to, to just read and understand and educate yourself. And it's not like it's just going to suddenly occur to you, oh, now I understand privacy. I know what I have to do. So um, if you're the person that's responsible for privacy in your organization or you want to be the person that's responsible for privacy, I would say just get online and start to educate yourself so that um, you can make a you know solid pitch for what needs to happen in your organization. And I think an important point of that, it too, is keeping in mind that extraterrestrial uh, jurisdiction. Just because we live in Colorado, of course, the Colorado privacy laws are applicable, but that doesn't mean the California laws are not. Yeah. Or the GDPR laws are not. You said extraterrestrial. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the ET. <laughs> extraterritorial. Yeah. Interesting about that, that, the idea that there could be so many different regulations that do actually apply to me and that my organization has to comply with. Um, what we've seen in some very large organizations that have significant numbers of these privacy regulations that apply to them, like Microsoft, I think, decided we can't try to identify every piece of personal um, information wherever it exists throughout all of our systems and our environments. And then for each one of those, tag it with the various privacy regulations that apply to it and then implement particular privacy controls or security controls that are appropriate with those regulations for that particular piece of data. It's, it's a minefield. It's impossible. You don't want to get into that. So what they decided to do was try to develop basically the highest level standard of the most strict privacy principles and controls, and they implement that across the board for all personal data. Rather than trying to figure out how to handle 150 different ways of treating different data in different circumstances, just treat it all at the highest uh, level, um, which I thought and for some organizations, that's going to be probably the most pragmatic way to approach this because otherwise it's, you know, you're herding cats. Absolutely. We also need to keep in mind the extraterritorial jurisdiction. Uh, just because we're located in Colorado, we know that the Colorado privacy laws and notification laws are applicable to us. But that doesn't mean that the California or the Massachusetts or the EU laws are not applicable to us. So familiarizing yourself with all those different um, privacy regulations and requirements, uh, and then figuring out how they are or are not applicable to the business that you're conducting is, is a good starting point as well. Uh, so I think we've hit on some fantastic topics today. We've looked at some of the regulations. We've looked at some of the repercussions. 
Uh, we've talked at length about uh, CCPA, GDPR, uh, some of the global, um, how to get started with them, some of the global requirements, how to get started with the program, uh, and some of the um, recommendations of good privacy related locations to uh, uh, resources to be looking at. So I want to thank Caitlin and I want to thank Matt for joining us today. Um, and uh, I really appreciate your, your input and your contribution. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. Now's the time in our episode where we look at our monthly spotlight. Uh, for this one, I'm going to turn it over to Matt, who's going to uh, grab a piece of recent news, and uh, we'll have a slight, small discussion about it. Absolutely. Um, a couple weeks ago, Facebook agreed to pay a $550 million settlement to Illinois users. Um, Google also sued over the same exact law, and it's a biometric law that was enacted in Illinois in 2008 um, that essentially required companies to be that were collecting biometric data to obtain consent from consumers, um, specifying how they'll use it, how long the information will be kept, things like that. And they didn't do that. Um, and it also allowed for private citizens to sue these companies rather than just government entities. This is crazy. I, I didn't know until this particular article and news story came out that Illinois had a biometric privacy law on the books for a while. I mean, this is before kind of the more recent privacy craze. And I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was something like 2007 or 2008. 2008, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that's, that's pretty amazing. Actually, I had to go back and look up, you know, okay, so we just talked earlier about what is privacy data and you know, figure out what is biometric data? How do you describe that? You know, I mean, fingerprints, I guess, is the first thing that comes to mind for me. But what I found is fingerprints, things like voice prints, our biometric data, um, and then you know scans of your hands, people do the palm print kind of thing, um, or your face as well are all considered to be um, biometric data. And eyes, iris, iris, iris scans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's very James Bond. It's very uh, something that we thought we would just see in movies, but it, it's real life now. <laughs> sure. What I saw about this one also, that I thought was kind of interesting, is that. Um, Illinois allows, or their law allows private citizens to sue if their biometric data is collected, even if there's no harm. They can't show that any harm has come from it. Just, just the fact that it was collected, um, they, can, um, they can sue just based on that alone, which I thought was kind of fascinating. In most cases, I feel like a, I'm married to a lawyer. You know, she would tell me it was have to, like, has to be some sort of harm that's occurred as part of a, of a lawsuit, but not, not in this case in, in Illinois. So what's the out for it? Do they, do you have to agree that they can hold your biometric data? Do you sign a consent form that you know that they have it? I mean. Yeah, it would be outlining that, A, that you, they, you are aware that it's being collected, first of all. That was the biggest part of this is they just didn't tell anybody. They were, they were collecting all this data, scanning people's pictures without telling them, um, which is, you know, what we were talking about earlier, Dave, that, um, you know, that Google uses those features to help you identify people in your own images. Um, it's very similar technology, but there was also this other side of it that no one actually knew uh, what was going on. And it also requires that you detail um, how long you'll hold that data and information and what you'll do with it. There's also this concept, I think, uh, to play a little bit of devil's advocate on this, 
that these types of laws and this sort of capability for individual citizens to sue organizations just for collecting certain types of data, I just read that some people have, have argued that that's potentially going to stifle some innovation and technology advancement because, for example, in Illinois, Google blocks certain of their func functionality because of this law. It just doesn't work um, if you're in Illinois, which is crazy to me. I hadn't actually thought about that before. I often use Google Photos, and every once in a while when I log into it, it'll present me with this page. It's basically saying, hey, I've got this set of pictures that have identified as you know, your brother Rick. And I think this picture is Rick too, but can you confirm that that's Rick? We're basically teaching the machine learning at that point, but it's clearly using biometric data. It's mapped out you know, Rick's face to determine whether or not you know, in each of these pictures it sees Rick. But that kind of functionality could be blocked for people who are in Illinois because of this law, and Google obviously doesn't want to get themselves in a situation where they're going to be sued. Well, honestly, I think Apple's had that technology since the late 2008-2009 uh, time frame because you could feed pictures into your Mac and they would divide them up by individual and it would ask you, this is your brother, this is your wife, is this also? And you could go through this entire list of pictures and click yes or no and that would make it smarter on gathering more pictures exactly. of these particular people. Exactly. So I guess there's an argument that maybe could be made that if these laws aren't you know, properly restricted or they're not properly implemented, it could scare technology providers to such an extent that they maybe don't provide features that people do really want. And so then we get into this sort of almost philosophical argument between, you know, how much privacy is the right amount of privacy um, and how much convenience do I want? How much access to like easy and fun features do I want? It's kind of fascinating. I haven't uh, spent too much time thinking about it, but my goodness, I imagine that's going to be litigated um, in the courts mostly to figure out what the right answer is. Well, and I think something that's really important is you know, people being able to understand what's being done and made a decision and making a decision based on that. So, for instance, with Google, if you don't want them to harvest your biometric data, you understand that by saying no to that, you're saying no to these features. But you may choose that to say yes to that feature and know that that data is being harvested. I think um, it gets concerning when people are can't read a 50-page privacy policy and actually understand what that company is doing with their data. I think GDPR has done a great job of requiring companies in, in clear, concise language up front to say, this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it. And you have a choice. Yeah. Um, I think... Matt, I... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was waiting for, for a pause. Um, but I think you touched upon a point that, you know, with privacy is the overarching issue that I briefly spoke about when I talked about what I thought privacy was, is that ability to control that PII, which which biometric data clearly is um, in its highest form even. Um, but it's that term consent, you know, you know, get, being able to give consent for these things and take away and withdraw consent if needed. You know, if, like you said, if Google or Facebook, you know, were the ability to to lay out what all of these things mean um, and being able to opt in versus opt out of the consent for some of these features. Um, I think moving forward, consent is just going to be a really big issue um, and, and how consent is being um, defined in these privacy laws. And that's interesting because the example that we're, we were just talking about, these you know photo um, functionalities in various platforms that allow you to upload all these pictures and it starts to identify, hey, I see the same face and all these, who is that? And you give it a name and you, I guess you can make up a name. 
But when you think about consent in that situation, I'm uploading pictures of other people onto my account. Right. They don't have the opportunity to give consent, but Google went ahead and mapped to their face anyway. Um, so then, you know, how do you set it up so that you can handle that? I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating. I don't know what the answer is going to be. Maybe, you know, I'll hypothesize. Maybe, maybe you can go onto Google, take a picture of your face and say, this is the map of my face. If you find this in any pictures, don't identify me. Or delete it. You know, or something like that. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a, getting into a little bit of futurology, I think, there. But it's kind of fascinating. Well, yeah, if we were EU citizens, we could potentially try it out. Send Google a picture of yourself and say, I want to be forgotten. That'd be interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so much should do that. Because you can you can request to have all of your data. Well, you can first request to ask, you know, I want to know exactly what you have, uh, all of my data. What is it? And then. And that actually you technically can do today. Mm -hmm. You can submit a request to Google, to Apple, and they will give you a file of everything they have on you. Yeah. Um, the one mm -hmm. I got from Google was like 45 megs in size. I mean, it's. Everything you've purchased, every site you've gone to, everything that they're collecting—it's wow. very interesting. Fascinating. From how? From how? Shane, just a quick question, if you don't mind. How? From how far back? From, uh, a from site, as far from back a... as I started that account, which was 2006. Interesting. I was—I thought I was under some impression there were some logs that you can't go back farther than six years or something along those lines. But that's interesting. There was information on there from a long time ago. Wow. So, all right, great discussion. And now comes the uh, segment of our podcast where we talk about what's exciting you this month. What I'm excited for is Google changing the way cookies work and essentially eliminating or phasing out cookies over the next two years, I think. Um, there's some interesting conversation going on uh, among professionals and experts around what that will lead to, but uh, I think it, it opens the door to some interesting conversation and potentially some some different protections and some, maybe some different risks out there for consumers being tracked. I'm uh, excited about the new Proofpoint uh, State of the Fish report. They do an annual report. It's got a lot of um, interesting information in it, so it's definitely something I recommend people dig through. Um, something that's, I guess, not so much exciting but a bit concerning are some of the statistics that, um, that they reveal in their surveys. It's kind of wild. Um, only 49% of the survey respondents actually have a password on their home Wi-Fi network. Unbelievable. If I did that in my neighborhood, I would be the only person in my neighborhood who actually paid for internet. So yeah, I think it's a, I'm excited about these kinds of reports. They give you a lot of great actionable information. It's good to get an idea of what the trends are that are going on across sort of the cybersecurity um, domains and uh, provides a lot of good data. Kaylin, what insecurities is exciting you this month? Great. So recently I've been reading that uh, a lot of school districts are adapting new data security and privacy regulations. Uh, I guess lately they've been they've been a target um, for for ransom and, and hackers. And there's the regulations that uh, across the country are being um, put forth to, to vote in those those areas are um, something to, to keep an eye on in your own in your own districts as, as well as other districts across the country. Fantastic. And I will wrap this section up with. Uh, Equifax. Uh, I've done some significant research. I've read through the entire government document and uh, was very excited to find out recently that the Justice Department has charged four um, Chinese military members with the hack that stole over 145 million privacy records, uh, including social security numbers and birthdays. 
So it will be very interesting to find out where uh, these charges go and what action is actually taken upon. Yeah, just like that. All right, listeners, thanks for tuning in, and um, we really appreciate you. Uh, if this is uh, interesting and actionable to you, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast. Um, I'd like to thank our guests and my co-host, Dave. Woo! <laughs> and we will talk to you again in the near future. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cyber Info Exchange. Join us again next month at cybergrx.com.